0: Good morning, church. I'm delighted to be back with you. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to a passage that you may or may not associate with Christmas, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 this morning. I really am glad to be back. Last week, I was away at an academic conference, super boring, And uh, I would have much rather been here with you. That's a lot of nerds that hung out in that place where I was, but I guess I'm guilty of being one of them. Uh, But it's good to see your faces this morning, and I'm especially glad to come and start our Advent season as we start thinking about the coming Christ and why it is that we celebrate Christmas. Christmas has to be one of my all-time favorite holidays. I love this season of the year where we celebrate what God has done for us through the giving of his son. So we're going to look this morning Genesis chapter 3. There's all sorts of passages of scripture from the Old Testament and then of course in the New Testament that have to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. But frankly, the story begins right at the beginning, right? I mean, this whole thing uh, of the Bible has been building to this crescendo of a king that is coming and that will rule over his people and be a redeemer for those people. And so to properly understand Christ and why it is that we celebrate Christmas, I really do believe that we have to start in Genesis, the book of Genesis, these first chapters. Now look, here's what we're going to do today. I'm actually going to focus in on chapter 3. But we do need to tag in some passages in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2. So because there's so much Scripture that we're going to look at from those three chapters of Scripture today, I'm going to start off in Genesis chapter 3, and I'm just going to read verse 15 to start with, and then we're going to bring in all the other passages of Scripture as we go through the sermon today. So Genesis chapter, chapter 3, verse number 15. God cursing the serpent... Our enemy, Satan himself, says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Father, help us this day to properly understand who your son is and how this all fits in together, that this is more than just a story of a little child that's born in a barn stall a long time ago. That is indeed all true, but this is a story that's been set forth from the very beginning. And ultimately, our redemption, you saw the need for it and had planned and provided for it long, long ago. So help us this day, Father, to understand the coming of your Son and what he does for us. We love you. We ask you to bless us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered why it is that we celebrate Christmas? I mean, what is the big deal about Jesus being born long ago and all of those types of stories that we associate with it? Why is it that we have to have him coming into the world in the first place? I mean, that God would come is indeed a big deal. We can recognize that. But the question I'm really wanting to get at today is, well, why? Why? Why is it that Jesus has to come to us, be born to us, that we would celebrate Him the way that we do? Well, today I want to tell not just the story of Christmas, but I think, frankly, tell the story of Christianity as a whole and tell the story of the Bible as a whole by looking at these first chapters of the Bible where we see what God made, we see what God intended, we see what God warned against, we see what we did to mess it up, and we see what God promises to do to redeem us and to restore us. And so we'll tell the whole story today from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Genesis chapter 3. The first thing I want you to see here today, we're going to flip over to verse number chapter 1 for just a moment. I want you to see God's creation of, of man and his fellowship with God. So in the very beginning of the story, we see God creating not just the world and all that's in it, but specifically human beings. And when he does so, he says something unique about us that he doesn't say about anybody else or anything else. So when we look at those first two chapters, here's what we see. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told the story of creation in a very tactile way. God makes this on one day. He makes that on another day. He makes another thing on another day. And so on and so forth. You see God populating creation with all of the stuff from the seas and the skies and the sun and the moon to animals, fish, birds, and all of those types of things. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26 and verse number 27, the story of creation reaches a pinnacle where God creates that thing which he says is in his own image. And what is that thing? It is the human being. God has created all of this wonderful stuff, and pause to reflect on it for just a second. Notice when we go to the seas or we go to the oceans and we gaze across them, we're struck by their beauty, we're struck by their magnitude. We are in awe of the things that God made. When we look up at night at the sky and we see the stars and the vastness of the universe, and we think about just how large it is, we are in awe of the universe, not just because of its size, but because of its beauty. When we go to the mountains, we gaze across the horizon and we see the sun rise upon it or fall down and descend after it. And again, we're struck by the size of it and the beauty of it. Indeed, what God has made has been vast and beautiful and good. And yet of none of those things does he say about that what he says about you and me. In verse number 26, God said, let us, and of course scholars will note there the plural pronouns. He doesn't say, let me make, he says, let us. It's to suggest that there's more than just one person involved. And of course we look back now understanding the doctrine of the Trinity and we understand that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three are involved in this creative moment, which is a very interesting thing to note because if indeed the Son is involved in the creation act, which John chapter 1 tells us that He is, then the Son is involved in that creative act with full knowledge and awareness that the things He's about to make, namely human beings, will one day rebel against him, and he himself will have to step into this world, take on flesh, come as a servant, humble himself to death, even death on the cross. And yet Christ made you anyway. Let us, it says, watch this, make man in our own image according to our likeness. I'm telling you, folks, as beautiful as the stars are and the mountains are and the seas are, God didn't say that about any of that stuff. He says it about you and he says it about me. He says, let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And just so that we're clear, verse 27, God made man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. This isn't just men that have this. This is men and women, the human race. It is true of us that God made us in His image. Now, the question we would want to ask is this, why? Why would God make creatures in His own image versus not making them in His own image? Well, while all of creation is made to magnify and glorify our God, indeed, the beauty of the stars and the beauty of the seas and the beauty of all that God has made does magnify our God because it reflects the good nature of our God. Right? You ever think about it? God could have made a very boring world, couldn't He? He could have made it square. He could have made it vanilla. He could have made it plain and drab and ordinary, but He didn't. He made a world with purple and yellow and green and orange. He made a world with circle and square and rectangle and so forth. He made a world where sugar grows and we make chocolate pie out of it. He made a world where we laugh at jokes. He made a world where we fall in love. Where do these good things come from? How in the world do we account for the goodness of creation? Very simply this, it is good because it is made by a God who is himself good. And yet, even still, there's something else about creation It's even more special. He makes the human being, you and me, in his own image. What is that for? This is like asking the question of, what is the purpose of my life? Why do I exist? Or maybe, why do you exist? What is the purpose of your life? We can come up with all sorts of dinky answers to that question in our world. But listen, here's the answer of Scripture. You are made for communion with God. You are made to walk with God, to know God, to dwell with God, to have life in God. That's what it's all about. Listen, Christianity, you've heard me say this before, Christianity is not about per se rules and religion. It is not a faith set of beliefs that's designed to make you be a good boy or a good girl. Christianity is not about behavior modification. No, 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 no. Christianity is about living Christianity is about finding life in Christ. You are made for communion with the Most High God. This is what God made you for. This is what God intends for you to have in creation. St. Augustine said it this way at the beginning of his Confessions. If you don't read anything else by Augustine, read the Confessions. Augustine said this, that thou, quote, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, end quote. What is Augustine getting at here when he said this? He's saying simply this. You know what? You're made for one thing. Communion with God. And you can spend this thing, you can point this thing called the human being, this thing called life found in the human being, you can point it at all sorts of other things. You can point it in the direction of power. You can point it in the direction of fame. You can point it in the direction of sex, drugs, alcohol. You can point it in all sorts of direction. And by pointing it, I mean seeking after with hope and intent that somehow those things in this world are going to satisfy your soul. But what Augustine rightly understood is that given the fact that we, above all other creatures that God made, are the kind of creatures that are made in the image of God, therefore we're supposed to have communion with God. And if you point your life towards any other objective, my dear brothers and sisters, it will always leave you empty, hollow, and dry. I explain it to my students this way. Maybe I've explained it to you. I forget in places where I've said what. You can take a bicycle tire if you want to. And you can stretch it and put it around the rim of, say, a tractor-trailer-truck wheel. You can do that, sure. And indeed, you can go down the road with it on that tractor-trailer truck wheel. You can do that. But what will it do to the tire? It will destroy it. Why? Because it's not made for that. Listen, brothers and sisters, you're free if you want to, to take your life and spend your life and point it at something else if you want to. But I'm telling you, it is destruction. Jesus says that I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, but the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy. That's what he wants to do in your life. I want you to notice, first of all, in Genesis chapter 1, God made something special when he made human beings. He bothered to make us with all of our individuation. Why? That there would be a creature on earth... That there would be a creature in his vast creation that he himself communes with. That is what God seeks. Number two I want you to see, chapter 2, verse number 16 through verse number 17. Second thing I want you to see here is God's warning to avoid the tree of knowledge. Now look, God makes all this stuff, right? And we could really get into the theological questions this morning related to this tree of knowledge about why this tree and not some other tree You know what? We won't even go there this morning. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. So Genesis chapter 1 tells the story of creation in sort of a list way, a taxonomy, if you will, of all the things that God makes, and he categorizes them. Genesis chapter 2, the story of creation is retold again, but this time with a special focus on the creation of a man and a woman. And of the man of the woman, it says that he took the dust to the ground and he formed it and fashioned it and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, but he was alone. And so God took the man and he caused a deep sleep to fall on him and he took the rib and formed the woman from it. And I love what happens next. Adam wakes up there in the garden. He sees his wife, Eve, and he says the equivalent, the biblical equivalent of hubba hubba. He looks at her and says, this now is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. You can hear his desire for her, his satisfaction in her dripping off of his words. We're told the story of creation again in Genesis chapter 2 with the focus on man and woman and how God made them. But what I want you to see, verse number 16, after God placed man in the garden, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, here listen to this, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Verse 17, watch this. But the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. Watch. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I have to admit to you, I'm bothered by death. People say strange things about death. They say, well, it's natural. No, it's not. You say, well, we're not supposed to live forever. Yes, you were. I mean, God made us to live, right? We didn't, he wouldn't make us to die. This is why we've got to be raised from the dead to live again, right? Death is a disruption to God's good creation. And what God is warning Adam and Eve of here in chapter 2 is that, listen, I've made this. It is good. Remember the goodness of creation. God's creation is a world. I mean, the goodness of it explains so much to us, Right? The fact that creation is made by God who is good explains why it is that we fall in love, why it is that sugar tastes so sweet, why it is that we laugh at jokes, why it is that we can do all these creative things. The, the, the biblical scriptures, they explain so much to us, don't they, in terms of worldview? But it explains much more, doesn't it? Listen, the story of Christianity is not a story that says it's all a bed of roses. The story of Christianity is not a story that promises us ease. The story of Christianity is not a story that says everything is always hunky-dory. No, we see God's intention. We see the goodness of creation by virtue of what God made and what He intended when He made us to be image-bearers. That's all true. But there's also a disruption, and the biblical story accounts for it fully. Genesis chapter 2, Adam... Whatever you do, don't eat from that one. Was it the tree itself that corrupts? I doubt it. Because it was made by God who is himself good, and from God no bad thing comes. Or is it the move away from God in disobedience? Is it the rebellion in Adam to disobey God? Yes. Adam and Eve will ultimately disobey God and eat that fruit precisely as God warned them not to. And what is one of the consequences? As we will see here in just a moment, death will come to us as a result. So the first thing I want you to see is God's creation and His fellowship with man in creation. And the second thing I want you to see is God's warning to man to avoid the tree of knowledge, which is really to say, don't rebel against me, obey me. And the third thing I want you to see Genesis chapter 2, and then on into chapter 3. I want you to see God's curse and consequences of the fall. Now flip over to Genesis chapter 3 for just a moment. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent. The story begins in Genesis chapter 3 with a snake slithering into the garden. Something has already gone afoul. A rebellion is already afoot. The serpent has turned against God. Rebelled against God. And once, hear this, this is so instructive, not just for the story, listen to me, please. It's so instructive for the well being of our lives right now. The serpent is always seeking to tear down God's good world. He is always seeking to tear down God's people. He is always seeking to destroy the kingdom of God. The serpent slithers into the garden, he comes to the woman. And says, Did God say, You may eat of the fruit of the tree of, of all these trees? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows, and so you see the lie here. He says, for God knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So watch this, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant for the eyes and that it was desirable to make one wise, she took it and she ate it. And she gave to her husband that was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they put together fig leaves, and they tried to cover themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wives hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees. And the Lord God called to Adam and says, Where are you? And surely God knows the answer to that question. And so they said to them, We heard your voice in the garden, and we were afraid because we were naked and we hid ourselves. And God said to them, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man, watch this, verse 12, The woman who you gave me, she gave me the tree and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, Why is it that you have done this? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now verse 14 through verse number 19 is what I really want you to see. There are curses now that God will place on Creation, on mankind, and then on, also on the serpent. We begin with the serpent, though I'm, I'm just going to read it that way. I want to focus for just a few minutes on the others, and then I'm going to come back to the curse on the serpent. Verse 14. Because you have done this, you, been, you've, you are cursed more than the cattle, speaking to the, to the serpent, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, watch this, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, because of you, you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What do you see here? Well, a couple things. God had made a world beautiful and good, God made people, image bearers, to commune with him. This is what God seeks. This is what God has done. And we can account for so much in our worldview from this story. But there's a warning. Don't eat of this fruit, and the day you do it, you shall surely die. They eat the fruit. And now I just want to catalog for you a moment the kinds of problems that are introduced into this world. And I bet you as I do it, we're going to sit around and we're going to look and say, yep, those are still our problems today. Number one, death. Death is a disruption. We try to romanticize it as a coping mechanism. But death is our greatest enemy. Why? Because you weren't made to die, you were made to live. God created you body and soul as living creatures to commune with Him. Death is a disruption to that where body and soul are ripped apart, where bodies go to those graves right out there. And in the heat of the New Orleans sun are baked to dust. Souls go back into the presence of God and they long for the return of Christ. And while they, yes, bask in His glory, which is itself good, listen to me, they do so in a fallen state because they are disembodied precisely the way they were not created to exist. Longing, groaning, waiting for Christ to complete His work and raise those dead bodies from the ground. But for now... We eat the bitter fruit of death. The hardest thing in my job and career as a pastor over these last 24 years has been being hardest and beautiful, I have to say, at the same time, strangely. Walking with people through the valley of the shadow of death. Watching people, holding the hands of people, standing beside people as they take that last breath and slip into eternity. Death is a disruption, not just for them, but for all of the family and the loved ones that remain behind in the wake of this. Death is a disruption to this. But that's not all. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 through 10, there's also guilt. Examine not just the death around us that we have to endure. Imagine and envision the guilt and the shame in each of our own hearts. You know what you've done. And the enemy will come and badger you with it. The enemy will remind you of it often. The enemy will whisper in your ear, you're not worthy to be a Christian. The enemy will make you feel like God could never love you. The enemy will partially lie to you. You say partial? Yes, because some of what he says to us is true. Some of what he says to us is accurate. The truth of the matter of it is, I'm not worthy and neither are you. The truth of the matter of it is, none of us rightly deserve the grace and the mercy of God. But if we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace and mercy, would it? The lie is not about you. The lie is about God. Notice, isn't that how it happens in the passage? The serpent lies about what God has said and what God will do. That is his MO. That is how he operates The truth of the matter of it is none of us could ever stand in His presence. And yet, by the mercy and the grace and the love of our God, we have redemption through Him. But there is guilt. Verse 7 through 10, they are opening their eyes now to realize they're naked. Nothing in the world wrong with being naked per se. But they sense and feel their vulnerability associated with nakedness. What would make someone feel vulnerable? What would make someone feel uh, uh, at, at stake, so to speak? Only sin. And they cover themselves and they hide from God. This is exactly what we try to do. We try to run. We try to hide. We try to distance ourselves. There's also a hostility that shows up. Verse 11 through 13, there's now a hostility between the man and the woman. When God confronts Adam, Adam, who told you? What are you doing? What does Adam say? The woman that you gave to me, she's the one that tempted me. It is always our disposition to deflect our own sin onto someone else. No, no, no. We're not going to own it. We're going to deflect it onto someone else. And all that does is, number one, it prohibits you from receiving the grace and the mercy that you need. And number two, It creates hostility and tension in your relationships with people. We have the exact same problems today. There's also, verse number 16 through 19, there's just general difficulties. You see it with the sweat of Adam's face. Notice, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Eating bread doesn't sound like it's all that involved, right? You're just eating bread. What God is referencing here is the difficulty required in producing that bread from this point forward. And so we see all these curses. To the woman, verse 16, watch this, there's difficulty and sorrow in conception. What God is saying is that now the effects of the fall, now the effects of our sin will touch on even those most precious things to us in our life, our children. This accounts for a lot, doesn't it? It accounts for all sorts of things related to not just our lives, but to our children's lives as well. We see God's plan His creation and fellowship with mankind. We see His warning. We see His curses. But I also want you to see His provision and His salvation to us found in the seed of a woman. Verse 15. Verse 14 and 15. God curses the serpent. And it's in God's curse of the serpent that we ourselves find our own hope and deliverance. It is in God's curse of the serpent that we find our first prophecy of a coming Christ who would be for us a redeemer. And so while this passage and these chapters are not normally thought of as being associated with Christmas, actually verse 15 forces the Christmas image upon us. Look at verse 15. God cursing the serpent now says to him, I will put enmity. What is that? It means hostility and warfare. I declare war on you, serpent. I will put warfare, and where's that warfare going to take place? I mean, think about how God could redeem for just a second before we read the rest of the verse. God could have just sent a lightning bolt from heaven and squashed the serpent, right? But No, God doesn't do it. I mean, this is stereotypical of our God. God often redeems through the very vehicle that the brokenness comes, right? I mean, think about it. Peter denies Christ three times, and yet Peter will have the opportunity to redeem himself. He will have the opportunity to to affirm his love and affection and devotion for Jesus Christ, and he will have the opportunity to stand at Pentecost and preach and proclaim. God uh, works through Moses, who strikes the rock, and yet God uses Moses to hand them off into the promised land. God is going to work not just through a lightning bolt from heaven. God is going to work through the very vehicle where the problem started. Man. He says to the serpent, I will put that hostility, that warfare, where? Between you and the woman. What is going on? Watch this. Between your seed, offspring, and her offspring, her seed. What is God saying? I wage war through, on you through a woman, specifically through her offspring. Which is to say, God wages war through the birth of a baby. Starting to sound familiar? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It's through the offspring of a woman that God is going to work. Watch this. Now it, it moves not just from her seed generally, but to a specific seed, a he. Watch this. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, in other words, a specific child, he shall bruise your head, which is to signify defeat for the enemy. The serpent who slithers in, tempts us, and brings it all crashing down will himself be defeated through the bringing forth of a child who will crush the serpent's head. And you, it says, shall bruise his heel. What does this say? What God is promising in a pronouncing of a curse on the serpent, a promise to us nonetheless, is that a child will come forth who himself will defeat the enemy. But watch this. He will defeat the enemy at great cost to himself. This enemy will be defeated, but the enemy will indeed bruise the heel of this child, which is to say, shall injure and cause harm to that child. Here's what I want you to see today. I want you to understand why, why we celebrate Christmas. I mean, look, this is more than just a, you know, a cutesy story of a baby in a barn stall somewhere. <laughs> this is the story that's been unfolding from the very beginning. I mean, God creates all this, and it's beautiful and good. We destroy it with our rebellion, and God redeems us through the birth of a child who will destroy the serpent and bring deliverance for us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Not just God redeeming us, but God redeeming even the vehicle by which the problems come. God redeems loves us, and God redeems us through the bringing forth of a child who defeats our enemy. Father God, we do love you. We thank you for the day that we have to worship you and to proclaim your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And God, we are grateful that from the very beginning you knew, you saw, you planned, you reigned. Not just over a given moment, but through the whole story. God, through the whole story, you are on your throne. And Lord, this day as we start the Christmas season here at First Baptist, we do so looking to Jesus Christ, the one who is our Passover, the one who is the seed born of a woman who crushes the head of the serpent and brings deliverance and salvation to us. God, we celebrate him. We rejoice in him. And I pray that, God, you'd have your way in us this day. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.